And I want to unpackage the same thing that we talked about last Sunday, but from a different standpoint. So we're in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start again in verse 25 and recap where we were last week and then see the culmination of God's promise to him. So Luke chapter 2 verse 25 says this, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. What we see about this gentleman named Simeon is he really wasn't a very important character in the biblical narrative, much less in the Gospel of Luke, except for the fact that something special and particular was revealed to this man named Simeon. And what was special and particular that was revealed to him is he would not die before he saw the Messiah. That the Holy Spirit came to him and said, with your very own eyes, you're going to see the Christ child. And so this was the prophecy that he clung to for his life. And, and I believe he never gave up hope because he had this promise to cling to. First thing I want us to know this morning is this. God is a covenant maker. God is a covenant maker. God made with Simeon a covenant. You will see Christ. God is a promise maker and God is the promise keeper. Amen. There were no provided conditions given to Simeon about seeing the Lord's Messiah, except that it was confirmed by the Holy Spirit. The Lord told Simeon, you will see the Messiah. And he didn't give him a list of ifs, ands, or buts after that. No, he said, Simeon, I'm going to make a promise with you. You're going to see Jesus. And he made a covenant with him. So we see that from nearly the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to confirm the promise of God. One of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to confirm the promises of God. Now that's good stuff on Sunday morning at 8.55, amen? That God has given you a gift to confirm the promises of God. Now, I want you all to lift up my wife in prayer today. She's on her military weekend, and she is currently an... Officer level 3 and 03, which is a captain. She's going before the board today at 3 o'clock this afternoon to be interviewed for a promotion to major. So she's going to be Major Watkins, Lord willing. But she's got to go in front of a panel, and she has to recall all this historical information and this political information, such as who was the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Air Force and the Chief Command Sergeant of the Air Force. Now, wouldn't it be great, because I was helping her study, if I literally could be there sharing that information with her? Wouldn't it be great if I literally could be in that meeting, and I could say, honey, this is what we talked about. Honey, this is the person. 
It would be great if I was with her to confirm the information that she knows. But sometimes the information that she knows gets lost in the midst of life. You see what I'm saying? You can, you know, maybe you did this in, in high school, you studied for a test or college, and man, you got it like the back of your hand, and then you sit down there and the teacher gives you some material, and it's like you just, you just lost everything about life. You can't even remember two plus two for a little bit. And see, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is so you can remember what you should know. I wasn't even in my notes. It's good stuff. You see... The promise that was received through faith by Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would see Jesus, is a picture of the promise of salvation that we will see Christ. What happened to Simeon is a picture in the life of believer that the Holy Spirit confirms the promise of salvation, which is of an eternal nature. Now I want to show you how small the Simeon story is compared to your story. Now, the Holy Spirit told Simeon, you're going to see Jesus on a physical means. You're going to see the Christ child on a physical level. If the Holy Spirit confirmed to Simeon on a very small temporary basis that he would see a baby, how much more would the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer confirm the promise of salvation, which is eternal? Amen? If he confirmed to Simeon a temporary thing, then he will much more confirm to you and uh, me and you an eternal thing. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to confirm the promises of God. And this is the nature of how the New Testament speaks of the Holy Spirit and also the life of the believer. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In Christ, whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Somebody say sealed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the play, praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the security deposit for your salvation. I remember Mr. Fred telling me the story of when they found the, the land for the uh, Young Memorial Church. I think, Mr. Fred, you went and took $100 to that man. Is that correct? You gave him a security deposit that said, I don't want to lose what I got. I want to make sure I get this. And that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit because Jesus gave you the Holy Spirit so, my friend, you cannot be lost. Somebody didn't get that today. You have the Holy Spirit to ensure and guarantee your salvation. Pastor Enix, that good stuff today. <laughs> this is what I know. You see... Once we start to realize that we did not purchase Jesus, but indeed Jesus purchased us, our understanding begins to change in our view of salvation from a practice to a promise. Salvation changes from a practice to a promise of God. When my wife and I got married, uh, well actually before our wedding ceremony, we went out and bought a ring together. She picked out a ring for me, we bought it together, and she already had a nice one on her finger, but we bought something for me to have, a little less nice. Now, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I misplaced my ring, because I'm always weird about washing my hands, and I set it off at the bathroom counter, it's a bad habit. A few weeks ago, I misplaced my ring, and uh, I could not find it for five days. 
Now, my heart was sinking for about five days under the realization that I had lost such a precious gift from my wife. It was because of my own neglect, because of my lack of attention, that this precious thing was lost. Fortunately, it reappeared after five days in much prayer. Now, some of you believe your salvation is like this ring. You believe that if you neglect to pay attention to it, that if you are not mindful of it, if you neglect that thing, that it will be lost. My friend, the only reason I lost the ring is because I bought the ring. And you can't lose something that you didn't buy. Amen. Amen. You see, you weren't the one that bought your salvation. Jesus Christ was the one that paid for your salvation. If you would have been hanging on the cross and maybe you messed up, maybe it could be lost. But because you have the Holy Spirit and Jesus was the purchaser, it's not up to you to lose it. Jesus owns you, my friend. Is anybody listening today getting encouraged? You didn't purchase Jesus. No, Jesus purchased you. As the old hymn says, He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. We must refuse to believe the lie that salvation ever depended on us. The moment salvation depends on you is the moment that God is no longer sovereign in your life. The moment that salvation depends on you is the moment that grace is no longer effective. The moment that salvation depends on you is the moment that Jesus' blood loses power. But I've got some good news for somebody today. God is still sovereign Grace is still effective, and the blood has never lost its power, my friend. Amen? We know this, that God is a covenant maker. Secondly, God is a covenant keeper. We know this not only in the story of Simeon, but also according to the rest of the New Testament, as Romans 9.16 tells us, that it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's promises do not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. I want you to know that what happened to Simeon was a covenant, not a contract. And that your salvation is a covenant, not a contract. You see... A contract has certain parameters that must be met by both parties if, one, uh, if the contract is supposed to last. And if one does not uphold certain parameters, then the contract can be broken. That's why if you have a real estate agent, one time when I moved from Oakboro to Greensboro, we had a real estate agent, didn't think they were doing a very good job. And, you know, we had a listing for six months and... And actually, I, I didn't think the parameters of the contract were being met about four months in. So I called him up and I said, listen, we want to break contract. Because the other party was not upholding their end of the bargain. You see, that's a contract. But the difference is, a covenant does not have parameters. A covenant is based on the sovereignty, authority, and mercy of God. Not on our ability or performance. I want us to look today at one of our favorite patriarchs in the Old Testament, who is not just an example of faith, but also of covenant. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 15. Probably our most talked about character in 2013, I would say. 
And we didn't, we didn't even touch on this aspect of him here. We're going to be talking about our man Abram or Abraham. So our familiar verse is going to be verse 6. Now this is what we talked about all year. Verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now I'm not going to dissect that today because we drove it home for, for months and months and months in last year. That Abraham's righteousness was accredited righteousness that came from God. But here's where we're going to fast forward to. After that, then God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you to this land to inherit it. And he said, Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know I will inherit it? So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to God and cut them in two down the middle and placed pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And the vultures tried to come down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not there, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, but you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephraim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Praise the Lord. God bless the reading of his word. That last part's a mouthful. We're not going to talk about that last part. Here's what I want to talk about is the covenant that God made. I want to talk about the way God instituted a covenant with Abraham. You see, when Abraham asks him in verse 8, he talks about the land that God's going to give him. Abram says, how shall I know I will inherit this land? I believe what Abraham is doing is he is asking God about this promise. Is this a contract or a covenant? Now, how are we going to know? If it is a contract, God's going to give him a list of things that he's going to have to do. If it is a covenant, God is going to show himself as a covenant God. So here's what happens. As a covenant, God doesn't respond with a list of actions. What he does is he requests five animals. Now this is interesting to me because five is the biblical number of grace. And so God asks for five sacrificial animals speaking of the number of his grace and not the works of Abraham. A covenant God always reflects the character of God. Oh, I'm sorry, a covenant of God and not the character of man. So when God asks for sacrifices, he's saying, Abram, it's not going to be about your works. Do you see that? If it was going to be about Abram's works, he would have told Abram what to do. But because there's going to be something that dies in the midst of it to establish the covenant, he's saying, God, it's Abram, it's not going to be about your works. It's going to be about my grace and my mercy. So we ask him to bring these five animals. 
And Abram divides the three large animals into two pieces and places them opposite each other. Now, after Abram goes into, uh, after the night falls, what happens is these two apparitions appear. It was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now let me tell you something. Let's break this down for a second. In the ancient days of Mesopotamia, in the regions of what we call the Semitic languages, when you would make a covenant of someone, with someone, you would both, both bring animals together, divide them into pieces, and both parties would walk through the middle of the sacrifices. Pastor Robert, let me borrow you. So let's say, uh, you know, Pastor Robert, we're going to make a covenant with one another that says, uh, hey, uh, I'm never going to fight your people again. So he's got um, uh, uh, a heifer and I have a goat. And we're going to divide these in two. And we're going to set those pieces. Here you go. We're going to set those pieces of the animal opposite one another. So we've just made a sacrifice to institute our covenant. And the way we would agree on it, we're going to walk towards each other, is we would walk between the pieces of the covenant to show that we both have entered into a covenant. Amen? So we both brought sacrifices, and let's walk together just to demonstrate it. We walk through. Nice doing business with you. That was it. No contracts, no legal fees. We're done. Now this is how it was done in early Mesopotamia. And I believe because of several indications in the text that Abraham knows what God is about to do. And what we see here is interesting. God did not ask Abraham to pass through the sacrifices. I want you to notice something. It was not Abraham who walked through and met God. Abraham is observing God passing through the sacrifices himself. Let's learn something about this. Many people have asked about the representation of the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch. It could possibly represent, the smoking fire pot represents tribulation, and the blazing torch represents God's glory. So the possible picture here is that in bringing about the covenant, there will be much tribulation, but God will still get the glory. That's a possible story we get. But I think the more important representation is not the meaning of the entities themselves, but the number. I think what we need to note is the number of entities that show up. Two. And the two entities pass through the sacrifices. So here, I think, is the picture that we get. God is giving Abram an absolute confirmation that this covenant fully rests on the nature of God himself. That God is establishing the covenant of himself and in himself, and he is filling the place of both parties in the covenant. I imagine when Abram sees this, maybe he's thinking to himself, well, it looks like God is making a covenant with himself. And I think, indeed, the covenant God makes with Abraham is contingent upon nothing other than the divine decrees of God and is a representation of the covenant that has always existed between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, indeed, what, Abram is, what God is showing Abram is, I've always been a covenant God, and when I make a covenant, it's because my own nature decrees who I am. He is making a covenant based of his own nature. And that's how Abraham needs to know. He says, Abram, you don't even need to be in this. I got this. You see the picture? I'm going to take care of it. Here's the point we need to make. 
God's covenant was confirmed through his manifestation in the midst of sacrifice. So Abram says, how do I know you've told me I'm going to inherit this land? How do I know? God manifested himself in the midst of a sacrifice. The Hebrew word covenant is berit. It comes from the root word barat, which means to cut. The word covenant means a dividing or a cutting. And literally the picture of these animals split in two and God passing through the middle is the picture of God cutting through these sacrifices to establish his nature and himself through Abraham. So God's covenant was confirmed through his manifestation in the midst of sacrifice. God was guaranteeing to Abraham, I will do what I say I will do. Now this is interesting because directly before this, he tells Abram that he's going to be a father and Abram simply believes and it's credit to him righteousness. Abraham, you're a 94-year-old man, you're going to be a daddy. Okay. But then he says you're going to inherit land. How will I know? Isn't that interesting? That he believes the physical promise about being a father even though he's never had children, but he doesn't understand the destiny promise about his inheritance. I find that interesting. So the first time, he receives credited righteousness through faith, but now because the promise is talking about his destiny, he wants to see something a little extra. And I think God gives him a little something extra. So the first promise was a promise about his flesh, you'll be a father, but the second is about his destiny. And when it came to his destiny, he needed to see God's character. He needed to base his understanding of his destiny on something about God that he did not yet know. He needed to base his belief about his destiny on some characteristic of God that had not yet been revealed to him. And what God showed him was that I am a covenant God. God revealed his character through the covenant. So let's fast forward now about a thousand years. And here, God intends now to make a covenant of destiny not just with Abram, but with Abram's offspring. Now God is going to make a covenant with all the offspring of mankind who will trust in the nature of the grace and mercy of God. God needs to let his people know that he is purchasing them as a people for himself and that what he has decreed will be secured. God is going to reveal himself in such a way That the way he shows his character will never have a doubt in his children's mind of if he's going to keep his promise. Now no longer does God need a five-fold representation of grace with heifers and goats and a ram and some birds. Now the five-fold representation of grace is the embodiment of grace himself in the person of Jesus Christ. What happened on the cross was not so important What happened physically, but what happened spiritually in the nature of God that allowed a covenant to be established. You see, in order for the sin of the world to be placed on Christ, something had to happen which had never happened before in the span of eternity. In order for the sinfulness of humanity to be embodied in the person and the deity of Jesus Christ, something different had to occur that had never occurred before in eternity. And what had to happen was that the nature of God had to be torn. 
the nature of God had to be separated so that a covenant could be established. When the wrath of God was fully laid on Jesus Christ, when his body had absorbed the infinite number of sins, the divinity of Christ, his eternal nature, was separated from his righteousness. The righteousness which had always dwelt simultaneously as a characteristic of God, God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit, they're all righteous, they're all eternal. All eternal. That characteristic that had, that had dealt in the Son, divinity and righteousness, was torn. Literally, there was a separation of the nature of God on the cross. Indeed, the one who before creation of time was intrinsically perfect became for our sake intrinsically sinful on the cross. His righteousness was stripped from his divine nature so that there would be a separation of his characteristics that me and you might pass through to God. There had to be a separation of the nature of Christ so that you and I could walk through and establish a covenant with God. And let me tell you what else happened, my friend. Matthew 27, 50 records this. That when Jesus was on the cross and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it says he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the temple veil was torn. There was a separation and that which had held man away from God, and God away from man. The veil kept normal men out of God's holy place, and it kept God out of normal men. Because until that point, God dwelt in the holy place. The Spirit of God rested on the Ark of the Covenant. Once that covenant was established... And not just the nature of Christ was separated, the temple itself was separated. And here's what could happen now, Brother Dean. No longer did a high priest have to walk into the presence of God. Now me and you can walk straight into the presence. And then the Holy Spirit, mm, this is so good. You see, there's a two-way street in the covenant. It's not just us that go into Christ. It's Christ who sent His Spirit into us. Pastor Robert, I'm going to use you one more time. You're going to be a camo Holy Spirit right now. Praise the Lord. Stand right here. So the nature of Christ was separated, his divinity from his righteousness, so that a covenant, literally a cutting, could occur to engraft us in. Now the Holy Spirit of God, which had dwelt at the Ark of the Covenant, could pass through to man, and man could pass into Christ. Can somebody testify today? Amen. Praise God. Thank you, brother. So that we could be engrafted into God and the Holy Spirit could be engrafted into us. And once the Holy Spirit's engrafted into us, that's the surety deposit that your covenant will not be lost. You see, God is a covenant maker. God is a covenant keeper. And this is why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the middleman, literally the mediator of a covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant because in his death, in his life, that ensures that the promise of salvation is true. 
You see, in the covenant with Abraham, the mediator was a heifer, a goat. And what was the other thing? Two birds and a ram. Those were the mediators. And it took five animals to mediate a covenant with one man. For God to mediate a covenant with any man who would come to Christ took one God. And he was the middleman so that we could pass into the nature of Christ. God is a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. Jesus is the mediator. <coughs> and the Holy Spirit is the covenant confirmation. He is the confirmation that what you believe about Christ is the surety deposit of your salvation. That because of Jesus' blood, we, like Simeon, will behold the glorified face of Christ forever and ever and ever. My question for us today is that do we have that assurance of our salvation? Do we have the security deposit of the Holy Spirit. You see, some of you guys are walking around and you think your salvation is like a ring. Well, if I don't do right today, then I guess I'm going to lose it or I might not know. Let me tell you, friend, you're in the hand of an almighty sovereign God. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That's because the Father is able to keep you to the uttermost preserve you to the uttermost and when we stand before him salvation will not reflect glory to us it will reflect glory to him who's the maker of the covenant the keeper and the confirmation let's stand for a closing prayer father god i thank you for your awesome amazing word lord i thank you for the holy spirit just like it was given to simeon to confirm in him the promise that you decreed and God, that he never gave up on that promise that he knew until his last day that he saw Jesus. And he said, God, now you can take me home, praise God. For every one of the believers in your place today, that's the same faith we rest in. Not only will we see Christ, but God, because of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we already have a revelation from him. And we don't have to wait to come into a temple, but God, the temple has already dwelt in us. We're so thankful, Father. My prayer today is that if anyone here does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that through faith we can step into an eternal relationship with Him. God, that they will turn from their old lifestyle of sin and run to you and cling to you with everything they have as the author and finisher of their faith. Father, whatever you have to do in this place today, have your will and your way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.